Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 lands and Métis Region 3. There will be an interview by Adam Camus with researchers from the military museums on their exhibit for Black History Month. First is an interview I did with Ben Kaplan, musician, performer, and creator of the play Old Stock, a refugee love story at Alberta Theatre Project. So today we're with Ben Kaplan from the show Old Stock, a refugee love story at ATP. So welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to speak with you. Okay. And so I guess uh, first off, uh, tell me a bit about yourself as an artist. Well, uh, I am a Halifax-based singer-songwriter and and performer. uh, I've been working as a songwriter and touring with a band for about 10 years now. And uh, starting about three years ago, uh, I started touring uh, with this uh, with this theater show, Old Stalker Refugee Love Story, which I co-created along with uh, the director Christian Berry and playwright Hannah Moskovich. How did the collaboration come about? It, uh, it started uh, because of Christian Berry. He was the... Uh, He's one of the artistic co-directors of the 2B Theater Company based in Halifax, and he had an idea to try to collaborate with me to make some sort of a theater concert hybrid mashup of a show. So he called me up and he introduced himself and asked if I would be interested in working on something with him. And uh, we got together and we, we started trying to figure out what to make a play about, and uh, it was maybe a few months after our first meeting that we finally began to figure out um, what we wanted to write about. And it was uh, around that time, this is back in 2015, we started getting a sense of the scale of the Syrian refugee crisis and the, the, the deep human tragedy that was happening there. And so in response to that, we started trying to think about what sort of a story we could tell about immigration, about refugees, and we started thinking about the the waves of um, of Jewish refugees who were coming to North America in the late 1800s. Um, there was a lot of pogroms, these sort of violent episodes. We started investigating that a little bit, and as we were beginning that work, Hannah Moskovich, who is uh, Christian Berry's partner, um, she just sort of stumbled upon the story of her great-grandparents who were Jewish refugees who came to Canada from Romania, in 1908, and uh, at that point, she became involved in the project, and uh, and got involved uh, to tell the story of her great grandparents, and that's what we built the story of Old Stock around. And I guess, uh, how long will the performance be uh, for the play? Uh, it's about an 80-minute show. And so, and how does uh, how what are the different elements that uh, are in the play? We we pull from a lot of different musical styles. Um, I think the the main aesthetic, the main musical style that we reference is klezmer music, the sort of traditional Jewish Eastern European folk music. Uh, but we also pull from other Eastern European folk traditions, as well as from you know all kinds of North American contemporary influences that you know inform my own artistic practice. Now, I mean, there's elements of hip hop and, and and rock and roll and and uh, you know other stuff that sort of melded and fused into the music. Um, you know, for me, it was important to be playful with the genres and playful with the different styles that were incorporated. 
because I, I really didn't want to treat klezmer music as a museum piece. You know, when it was a living folk tradition in Eastern Europe, there was constantly things were shifting as neighbors and different communities were sharing ideas and musical information with each other. And I wanted to participate in that conversation. Um, and then, of course, in addition to the music, we have these beautiful scenes that were written by Hannah Moskovich, and she, she has this incredible ability in her writing to do this dance between lightness and darkness. So there's lots of, of very sort of body humor and, um, and, and light moments, but also some, some pretty profound, uh, dark um, and, and powerful moments as well. And so what does it say about like looking back in history and being able to tell the story in the present day? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the reasons that we chose this story, I mean, we were thinking about the Syrian refugee crisis and the way in which refugees were being spoken about. And in particular, we're very disturbed by the comment that was made by Stephen Harper in the 2015 leadership debate when he made this distinction between new Canadians and quote-unquote old-stock Canadians. And that differentiation, you know, I, I personally found to be very deeply offensive, uh, as did many other people. And so the, the idea in telling a story from 1908 and telling the story that's more than 110 years old was to look at some of the ways in which Canadian society was responding to new immigrants, uh, you know, more than 100 years ago and some of those experiences from more than 100 years ago to think about the resonance of and the echo of, of what was happening then with what's happening today and to see, you know, the ways in which the rhetoric really hasn't changed that much. We're talking about different groups of people now, but our rhetoric and our fear and our othering and our, um, you know, projections of these negative things onto newcomers uh, remains largely the same. And so, you know, it's, a, a lot of time has gone by, but it seems like um, a lot of these lessons still haven't been deeply learned. Okay. And I guess uh, you've also been able to perform uh, the songs uh, during in front of a crowd at the Calgary Folk Fest. So can you talk about that experience compared to what you're doing in a, in a theater setting? Yeah, so yeah. when I was writing these songs with Christian Barry, you know, I was thinking about, I, I wanted to write songs that would really work as standalone compositions. Um, to, you know, to have the music be able to work in, in, a, in a concert setting as well. So I, I made an album of, of the music from this play. It's called just Old Stock. Um, and I've been touring quite a lot uh, the last couple of years with my band, just playing some of these songs as well as other repertoire um, from my other albums. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's very different context in the theater we have the opportunity of working with the lighting director and the set design and the deep specificity of the scenes and the architecture of this thing that we built. And then it's really fun to be able to just set all of that aside and, and go and, and just sort of play a rock and roll concert and just present the music uh, on its own. I, I really enjoy having the opportunity of doing both. They're, they're pretty different. And I guess, uh, can you talk about the cast you're going to be part of for this play? Yeah, so there's going to be five of us on stage. We have a, a fabulous drummer by the name of Jeff Kingsbury, originally from Nova Scotia, but living in Gatineau, Quebec. Uh, our, uh, our accordionist slash keyboard player is 
an incredible musician uh, who's actually originally from Calgary. Uh, his name is Graham Scott, and uh, he's, he's living now in New York City, but he's deigned to uh, get on the road with us and, and travel back to his hometown. And, uh, and we're working with a, a violinist and an actor named Shana Silver Baird. Um, she's uh, the newest member of our company and is, it's, it's just, it's amazing to see her facility with, with these two very different things, the acting and the violin playing. Uh, and then uh, with a similarly demanding role we have on clarinet, saxophone, and flute, as well as playing the actor's role of Chaim, we have a great actor by the name of Eric DaCosta, who's uh, uh, from Toronto. You've been able to tour um, the play itself as well, and so how has that been going? It's been a, a wild ride. I mean, we opened the show first in Halifax in, in uh, it was May of 2017, and since then we've performed it in, I think the count is, is 29 cities, or maybe we're up to 30 cities by the time we hit Calgary. Um so it's, it's been all around the world. We've been to Australia, to the Netherlands, all across the UK, um, California and New York and all across Canada. It's, it's really been, uh, it's been pretty incredible how, how well received the show has been and, and the demand for, for continuing the performance. So I, I just, you know, one can never count on these kinds of things having any success. And so it, it's just been very flattering and, and quite an honor to be able to tour in this show. Yeah, and I guess um, it's an interesting time with the uh, with the seventy fifth anniversary at the liberation of Auschwitz this past week. Hmm. Yeah, of course. It's a, it's another it's another resonance of, of this of this story. What stood out in terms of um, uh, audience reactions to the uh, play? Yeah, the audience response has been really positive. I, I mean, I think the show the show is uh, it's a, a stew of strong flavors, and so occasionally we'll we'll have people who uh, who uh, and this is very rarely we have people who who feel like some of the flavors are too strong. But uh, you know, generally, wherever we've gone, whether it's 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 in Canada or in the United States or Australia, you know, wherever we've been. There's been a deep connection to the show, and then the responses have been have been really striking. And you know, it's a very Canadian show. It's it's full of of very Canadian references. You know, even the title "Old Stock" is a is a reference to a Stephen Harper speech. We make reference to you know barbaric cultural practices, and we talk about the snow in Montreal and the the port in Halifax. But no matter where we go, I think that the audiences connect with it because this story is one that people are familiar with all over the world. You know, when we were in Australia, um, people were having big debates about their treatment of refugees and the, the way that they were um, dealing with that, that situation. And there was quite a lot of, of political conversation around it. The same is true in the Netherlands and, of course, in the UK with all of this Brexit. The idea of immigration and the states, I, I, don't, I don't need to tell you, so, um, unfortunately, no matter where we've gone, no matter what our audiences have been, this subject matter is one that is on people's minds and that, that people are, are connecting with and resonating with. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Ben Kaplan, for your time today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks yeah. so much. Thanks. Take care. Take care. That was my talk with Ben Kaplan from the show Old Stock, a refugee love story at ATP. It runs February 5th to the 16th. 
Visit albertatheaterprojects.com for more info. Here is Adam Camus with his interview with researchers from the military museums on their exhibit for Black History Month. I'm speaking with Alan Ross and Indra Tikasing from the military museums. They're volunteer researchers working on Black History Month's atrium exhibit at the military museums. Uh, for more information on this, you can check out themilitarymuseums.ca. And without further ado, I'd love to welcome Al and Indra. How you all doing? Hey, we're doing great. Pretty good, thank you. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for making time to chat with us today. Uh, this is a really interesting exhibit happening over at the Military Museums. Uh, yes, it is, yes. Do you mind uh, giving our listeners a little bit of an idea of what they can expect by visiting the museum? Well, this year, Indra and I, this will be the third year we put on an exhibit for Black History Month. And uh, what we've done, uh, we've taken a kind of a unique look at profiling these uh, these histories is we're we research individual soldiers and write up a description and history on them and present them at the museum. And in addition to the soldiers, we refer to it as our bio panels, we also have artifacts that are linked to the history for each of the individuals. When speaking about Canadian military history, are we looking mostly at the 20th century or anything, any focus areas? Well, right now, we... we um, because of our, because of what we can find historically, we're, we've been focusing mostly on World War One and World War Two, and uh, current Afro-Canadians that are serving in the military. One of the reasons we're doing this too is that most people are very surprised when they found out how many ethnic soldiers served in World War One and World War Two for Canada. Now that brings up a very interesting point, Andrea. This speaks to like you know, Canada being a, a cultural mosaic. Mm-hmm. And th- I guess maybe that's a, a more modern sort of self-analysis as a, as a country. But, you know, historically speaking, uh, we've been a country of immigrants, unless you're an indigenous person, right. uh, you, like everyone is coming from somewhere else in one way or another. Is there that perception because maybe there isn't like any sort of media attention or pop culture references to uh, the diverse little media attention until we started highlighting the various ethnic groups of the museum. And when we looked into it, we found uh, Sikhs, we found West Indians, uh, we found American uh, Blacks, Africans, uh, American, and um, it, it's all such a great history, and it's such a great learning project. It's going to be worth your while to come to the museum. Yeah, we, we find that when we, when we do these displays, we've done, we've done a couple in addition to Black History Month. We've also done Sikh Heritage Month. Um, we've done uh, D-Day Dodgers, and we engaged the Italian community. We did soldiers from the Caribbean. Basically, we're just trying to tell the soldiers of, uh, stories of Canadian soldiers of other races and ethnic groups, minorities, you know, men and women of diverse backgrounds and interests and various religions, the stories that you typically don't hear when you go into a military museum. Interesting. Now, do you think there's any particular reason why that is the case, that that, that conception isn't, isn't there? Well, Canada wasn't a diverse culture, say, like I came here in 1974. So it's, it's gotten really diverse since 1974. And the new immigrants want to hear the stories. Yeah, they, they, and I think, I, think they, I think they find it really helps us feeling like, hey, you know, we, our, our, four, our forefathers were there, and they fought too, and, and I think it's great. It makes them feel like they're part of this, you know, this birth, this new country, Canada, this huge melting pot, if you will, and, and, and they just want to learn and, and know about it. 
there was one thing I saw uh, looking into uh, the exhibit that was kind of interesting was the number two construction battalion. Correct. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the number two construction battalion was a Canada's first segregated all black, all black uh, non-combatant um, battalion. The reason it came about was, you probably heard the expression that uh, the early wars, they refused to refer to it as it's a white man's war. So there was a lot of um, resistance to take people of different ethnicities into the First World War and a, and a little bit to the Second World War. So young Afro-Canadian men wanted to contribute to the war effort, and they were not being accepted at the recruiting offices. Finally, after much delegation, the number two construction battalion was raised. As I said before, it was Canada's first all-black segregated battalion. They went over in 1917, I'll have to check my notes, uh, with about 600 men strong. And uh, a pretty interesting history there as well. Uh, their, their chaplain was Chaplain White, and he was the first honorary captain of, a, of, of an ethnic man, black. And the uh, doctor that actually served and looked after the men of the number two construction battalion was Anne Murray's grandfather. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Hmm, that is quite fascinating. Now, this construction battalion, they, you mentioned they weren't front-line troops, they were support troops. Yes. Yeah, what what they did was they, uh, they, they worked mainly in the Jura forest, cutting lumber and um, laboring at uh, building the trenches. I guess a lot of other combatants in that war, especially the colonial powers, uh, certainly had colonial troops that were uh, employed in similar sort of ways. It, was the, there a perception that uh, people of color uh, weren't as, you know, suited to uh, frontline fighting? Well, definitely. Yeah, most definitely, and especially in Canada. Um, and even, even as, and if we can just jump forward to the Second World War a little bit, uh, the uh, Royal Canadian Navy and Air Force did not want to accept, accept people of color at first. Um, the perception was that they, they didn't have the heart to fight. And, of course, you know, it was they, a perception were, that was... Yeah, they were proven wrong, because there was other battalions that did accept blacks in fighting units um, later on, like... Yeah, there was about 2,000 men that served in fighting battalions in the First World War, and some of them were uh, highly decorated, uh, distinguished conduct medals, we're talking military medals for bravery at Passchendaele and Vimy Ridge. You did touch upon an interesting thing about integration into other services, like uh, having, you know, like a service battalion is kind of denotes one one level of uh, participation in uh, in war, but uh, not being admitted into the Navy or Air Force. It, it seems like there's uh, something interesting in that, too. Yeah, it's, they, they thought that, um, in fact, I've got, um, there's one soldier that we did. His name was um, Percy Haynes. And he tried to enlist in World War II and was turned down, and he wrote some letters and finally got it overturned and did join the Canadian Navy. Now, he did not go overseas. He was uh, actually, Percy was a great piano player and musician before the war broke out. They actually kept him back in Canada, where he did stay to uh, work in more of a supportive role and entertain the troops. And that was, we're talking World War II. If we jump back to World War I now, as, as Inter was saying, there was about 2,000 men that did serve uh, Afro-Canadian men that did serve in fighting battalions. And as I said before, highly decorated, some of them. Now, how would, uh, like, a, an Afro-Canadian, uh, in the, especially the First World War, find themselves 
integrated into a regular combat battalion and then in a different scenario they they're segregated into a support unit well some of them went to the different recruiting stations right and they were accepted in some and turned away in some so it was a matter which recruiting station they went to yeah so in the the first world war canada had uh, 260 uh, fighting battalions so depending upon where you were recruited, it could have been on the opinion of the recruiter whether or not to take you. So to answer your question, probably just depended where they went and whether the guy, yeah, okay, we'll take you in. Another thing we should mention, too, though, is that after the First World War dragged on, you've got to remember that when the First World War first started, they, the selling motto to get young men to sign up was, hey, guys, you better get in there. This thing's going to be over. This is 1914. This thing's going to be over by Christmas. You, you know, join up. You're going to miss all the action. Also, young guys joined up. And of course, when they get over there, it wasn't all swashbuckling and, and sabers. It was, you know, trenches and rats. And it was a horrible mm-hmm. scenario. And then, of course, the front, you know, the front lines became a stalemate. It was a, you know, they just basically bled each other white. So towards about 1916, 1917, I'm starting to realize we've got to start finding, you know, words getting back that this thing isn't pretty and we need to conscript more men. Hence, I think some of the regulations were lessened up a bit and acceptance of how these minorities started. Well, we lost so many soldiers in the first maybe six months of the war that they needed to get reinforcing soldiers out to the trenches. No, that, that totally makes sense uh, it, it, because conscription was introduced in Canada in 1917. Right. Right. Uh, as, as a general thing. And there was like riots in Quebec, if I'm not totally mistaken. Oh, gosh, yeah. 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 And, and uh, I, I guess that, that sort of uh, luxury of racism uh, evaporated by that point? Well, at that point, they were saying, we need you to fight for Canada. Yeah. Gotcha. No, that, that's interesting. Now, with war, there's always the chance of becoming a prisoner of war. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you come across any stories of... Uh, uh, Afro-Canadians becoming POWs in either conflict. Yeah, in World War II, uh, we actually feature one individual that was a POW, and I've got, uh, actually have the bio panels right here. So there was a private, Benjamin Wilson. So he fought in World War II, and uh, was it, he actually fought in the, in the Italy campaign. And it was on October 20th that he was first reported missing, and he received a letter uh, to his father that uh, his father believed that he was okay and was in a hospital. It was, in fact, later confirmed that he had been captured and was in an enemy POW camp. Luckily, uh, he was released and safely returned to Canada. His father was the, was the uh, infamous fighter, Joe Wilson. From B.C. And he was considered the, uh, he was the, uh, and I'm reading it right off a newspaper clipping, he was the colored welterweight champion of Canada. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, so we've got some, we had, last year we had some other very interesting stories. We had some fellows that were actually, um, for the number two construction battalion, that were murdered in France. And it was never really resolved, uh, nor was it per, actively pursued what happened to them. Were they murdered? Was it an accident? Uh, was it because of their color? Uh, they were some interesting stories. Yeah, no, uh, war is definitely hell. And uh, I don't know. It's hard to look back now, and I guess, were you able to collect any uh, stories from any living participants from the Second World War? Or? Um, well, there is a lady by the name of Kathy Grant, and she operates out of uh, Ontario, out of Toronto, and she has a wonderful website with, uh, so, like, stories from World War II, from Black veterans, 
and it, it's worthwhile. Um, I, I, I'm in contact with Kathy Grant, and if you go on Facebook, you could pull her name up and pull up a lot of these stories. Oh, that well worth uh, doing some extra research. Yeah, yeah, but you know, to, to answer your question though, no, we we were not able to contact any current living World War II veterans. No. No, but there is a lot of them in Toronto and a lot of West Indians that were in the number two construction battalion also. Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, I don't, number two construction battalion, yeah. yeah. But we'll, we'll yeah. still there. We, we, do, we do tell the story of one fellow by the name of Gerald Paris. He was the last surviving Afro-Canadian from the D-Day invasion. No kidding. So there yeah. was uh, Afro-Canadians landing at Juneau Beach. Yeah, yes. That, that's a wild story, and that's... Something that uh, it's important for everyone to keep uh, in mind when when looking at a, a past event, especially one that's passing out of living memory. Yeah, yeah. Is the fact that, uh, especially in a country like ours that is largely an immigrant nation, yeah. uh, that uh, it takes all kinds to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, uh, I guess uh, I'm kind of curious to know, in your research, what would, did you find the most impactful or important thing that you discovered while preparing for this exhibit? Well, I guess, you know, besides some very interesting stories, it, it's interesting to, um, some, of the, some of the World War II veterans, uh, some of them thought that the, the war helped, to, they thought the war helped to, to bring down racial tensions or barriers. We, we, I have read that. And others felt that um, they weren't treated fairly. They weren't treated fairly. And, I've, and I've heard that comment sometimes in, in actually post-war veterans as well. Uh, so, you know, the most astonishing thing, I guess, is that, and it seems like when the guys are in the foxholes and fighting, it didn't matter who you were, what you were, where you came from. They all united together. Uh, and perhaps after they got out of that situation, some learned from it and others perhaps went back to their preconceived feelings about... The racism returned after the war. Yeah. So in your maybe interpretation, it wasn't maybe the same sort of watershed moment it was in the States, uh, like having, you know, uh, black combat troops. Well, I remember one soldier in the States where he wore his uniform and they asked him not to. And when he wore it again, they hung him. Ah. So, you know, um, Canada has stories where, you know, after the war, the racism returned. That's interesting. So... I guess maybe your your interpretation is that, you know, this participation of Afro-Canadians in both world wars, the two biggest wars this country has ever been involved with, uh, maybe furthered uh, awareness of, of the value and importance of, of Afro-Canadians and their contributions in, in the military. Well, it does. But, didn't... but as an immigrant, you're always having to prove yourself. And I bet they always had to prove what they did for Canada to be accepted. Interesting. Now, uh, what was something that uh, you think every Canadian should know about going into this exhibit? Um, Every Canadian should know that there were soldiers of every race. And they served Canada and they did a great job. They, They bled... Just like every other soldier, they were taken POW, and I don't know how long it would take for um, everybody to realize that ethnic people did contribute to both wars. No, that's that's uh, excellent. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And not only ethnicity, but people of various religious backgrounds, diversity, interest. You know, all the men and women of Canada that have served, um, I think it makes up for a greater and stronger Canadian forces to have this great diversity. Yeah, and you know, something I'd like to get out there is please come and see the other exhibits and see the other countries that uh, supported Canada in the war, in both wars. No, absolutely. Uh, And now, speaking of said exhibit, this runs February 3rd to March 1st, 2020? That is correct. Right, and then we have Sikh history running for the month of April. Excellent. So hopefully we talk to you again about Sikh history and the contribution by the Sikhs in World War One and World War Two. Yeah, I, I would love to chat with you both on that. It's a fascinating subject, especially uh, yeah. because it kind of shatters some of the maybe conceptions of what service was like uh, or Canada's contributions uh, to the war. And like Canada isn't a leviathan monolithic thing. It's a uh, it's a, a pastiche of a lot of different flavors. So. Definitely. It's a very diverse cultural country now. Excellent. And it sounds like it always has been. Yeah. It's just whether or not those people get recognized. I leave you with one interesting story uh, of a soldier we did last year. It was uh, Private Robert Bert Gilbert. Um, he was at Vimy Ridge, and he did uh, something incredibly brave. He uh, captured 24 German soldiers, including their commanding German officer. And the German officer was so impressed by his bravery, he took his Iron Cross off his uniform and put it on Private Gilbert's uniform. Which is astounding. It, it, you know, not only is the numbers astounding in that story there, but uh, I presume this private was using a bolt-action rifle with limited firing capacity, uh, rounding up, a, uh, 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 what, 25, I guess, uh, yeah, enemy combatants yeah. in total? This is Jenny Kwong, your host for ArtsLink. Thanks for listening to this month's episode of the show. We'll talk to you again in March.